Hey everyone, welcome to the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. I'm your host, Master Sergeant Barrett. Our goal with this podcast is for Team Fairchild to get to know each other, our support programs, and to increase our sense of community and development. Every episode, we will be interviewing people from around the base and learning about them and their keys to success. All right, on this episode of Refuel Team Fairchild, we're sitting down with Colonel Johnson, who is the MSG, currently the MSG commander. Sir, how's it going? Doing well, and you? Doing well, sir. Good. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and uh, go, go through this interview. I know you're probably very busy, especially with what's going on right now. I, I know I saw the emergency managers walk by, so I know you got the EOC up and everything. So we definitely appreciate you sitting down. No problem. To ask you some questions. So we'll go ahead and get into it. Um, so what we always like to start off with first is what your, your story, how you got to, you know, your, when you first started your Air Force career and how you got to where you are now. Yeah. My story goes back a little further than just when I started my Air Force career. So I grew up in a... Um, a Navy household, so my dad was a uh, enlisted Navy guy, retired as a chief in E7, um, and then my wife, uh, her father retired as a command master chief in E9 from the Navy, so we're both from Navy families. So um, after graduating high school, I, I knew I wanted to go in the military. Um, I was either thinking the military or going to a culinary school, uh, believe it or not, but I decided that the military is what I think I wanted to do, so I went off to Virginia Military Institute. With the grand idea that I'd end up in the Marine Corps. I want to fly F-18s off of ships in the Navy, but I want to do it as a Marine, not as a sailor. And so that's where it all started, was, was at Virginia Military Institute. So over the time, I, my family, we didn't know a whole lot about getting scholarships or anything for college. So I didn't have an ROTC scholarship or anything like that. So I was trying to pick up commissions. Mid-90s hit, and uh, commissions started to go away. The military started to draw down. A little bit, and so there was nothing in the Marine Corps. Um, so my options were: if if I wanted to go in the Marine Corps, I really could enlist, and then hope I could pick up a commission later. Uh, that did not make my father happy when I talked about it. Uh, it wouldn't have made me happy. Um, and so talked to my dad and, and and my father-in-law about what to do. I was thinking about going into the civil sector and just becoming. Uh, I was a mechanical engineer by degree and just getting a job. Both of them, but especially my father-in-law, said, "Hey, what do you think about the Air Force?" Uh, so when I was done laughing at him, because uh, there's no way I want to go in the Air Force, I thought, he, he's like, no, seriously, they take care of their people, they have great facilities, they take care of their people, they have nice bases, nice locations, they take care of their people. Uh, he kept going back to they take care of their people really well, uh, being that I was going to be marrying his daughter in about a year uh, when I got out. So I went and talked to him, and, and the, uh, the major who was down there wasn't very interested at all in me coming in the Air Force. He had already met all his quotas, all the pilot slots were filled and everything else, and so he asked me if I was on contract with anybody to come in. I said, nope, that's why I'm coming down here talking to you. And then he asked me what my degree was. And when I said I was a mechanical engineer, then he got very, very interested in me at that point um, because they needed engineers pretty bad. So he asked me if I knew what the Civil Engineer Corps was, which I didn't at that point. And so he showed me kind of what they did in the book, kind of explained it and everything else. About five, ten minutes later, I was signing paperwork for a commission in the Air Force. And then I went off to field training at Lackland uh, the very next summer. Uh, finished up school that fall, fall of 1994, graduated December. I got married in uh, in January of 95 and came on active duty in February of 95. Uh, so that, that's when I started. So that's kind of my background on how I got into the Air Force. Um, and then I've just had about 13, 14 different assignments since then. Just, um, just a couple then. Just a few. Just a, few. Uh, a lot of moves. Uh, so uh, my daughter's been around for all of them but one. And my son for all of them but two. Oh, wow. uh, so he was born at our third assignment. My daughter was born at my first assignment. A um, couple assignments, uh, less than 18 months. A couple assignments, less than a year. Uh, assignment before this was less than a year or right at a year. So um, a lot of experience jumping all over the place. Was in Korea for a year uh, down at Kunsan, the Wolfpack. That was a fun place to be. Hard because you're away from home, but everybody's remote there. And so very, very close-knit. Probably what I would say is what most people envision the Air Force is like uh, when you go there. It's a team that works hard, works extremely hard. A lot of exercises um, in a gas mask for about seven, eight hours Mm -hmm. uh, during the day when you're in those exercises sometimes. But also a very close-knit, very family-oriented, personnel-oriented family is what I'm talking about, big Air Force family. Uh, squadron so it was really great and the whole the whole base was like that so that's kind of a little bit of my story on, on how I got here um, what, what I would like to ask next is um, if you could give yourself some advice when you first started in the Air Force back when you're assuming 22 23 years old what would be that advice 
to another to another young young person who's just starting off their career, officer or enlisted. Or you can break them up and do one of each if you want. I'd say challenge what you think is the norm um, because everybody brings stuff into the Air Force, right? We bring we bring stuff from our background, and everybody has different backgrounds. I remember when I first came in, I knew I wanted to do at least 20 years. Um, that's something I kind of knew what I wanted to do. For me, I couldn't imagine anybody else would want to do any less time than that. Uh, so I remember having some conversations with some of the other lieutenants in our squadron. We had my first squadron there at McConnell Air Force Base. Um, we had seven lieutenants, and our boss called us the Magnificent Seven from from the movie, the Old West movie. Uh, so kind of funny. But I um, was talking to him, and, and one of them was going to do four years and then get out and go on and do something else. And I asked him a lot of questions about that because I just couldn't fathom that, and I thought everybody who came in wanted to do a career. Uh, and I think a lot of that was because of my background. My dad had done 20 years. Uh, my brother was actively serving at the time. He had already been in for four or five years in the Navy. Um, he retired us in E6, uh, first class from the Navy. It's just my perception was that everybody wanted to stay in for 20 and do 20, and I, I couldn't imagine why anybody would want to do less. Um, and so what I'd say is when you first come in, kind of put everybody brings this baggage in with you wherever you come from, uh, whether it's uh, whether you grew up in the South, whether you grew up in the Northeast, whether you grew up in the Pacific Northwest, wherever you grew up, you bring cultural things with you. And just learn that not everybody is like you. Everybody is different, and they bring different aspects and different thoughts and different cultures with them into the Air Force, uh, whether they're U.S. citizens or whether they're citizens from another country. We have a good number of people serving from other countries serving in our military as well, working either towards its citizenship or, or something else. And those things are what really make us strong. Uh, so if you look at, at our nation, uh, the whole manifest destiny thing where we're going to go coast to coast, and uh, to protect us so we have oceans on both sides. And really the strength of our country is just the vastness of it and how different it is. And it really provides an American way of thinking, I think, that is different from most other cultures in that um, we have very, very different regions uh, that have different, you know, even different dialects to to English. People tell me mm -hmm. I, I have an accent. I just don't hear it, but I know everybody else does. <laughs> Those are what make us strong is we bring all those different things. And so what I'd say starting out your Air Force career is try not to pigeonhole people into what your idea of them is um, because they'll surprise you uh, and surprise you in a good way on just approaching problems, thinking about different things, and, and, and learn to draw on those strengths and learn to draw on those opinions and values and everything else to really get the job done. Um, so that would be the first thing I would say is don't. Set aside some of your cultural norms that you're used to seeing mm -hmm. and uh, expand your view in, into a larger culture of, of the U.S. And, and how we can accomplish things. The second thing I think, and it was really at my first, very first duty station, um, my commander, uh, Colonel John Barr, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Barr, still in touch with him every now and then today. Um, he said, bloom where you're planted. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really, really important. Um, bloom wherever you're planted. If you don't like the job you're in now, do the do the best you can in the job you like right now, um, because that's what's going to get you noticed is your ability to perform and your ability to get the mission done. Yes. And so, no matter what job or what task you have, bloom where you're planted, and, and it will, and and you'll succeed from it. And I'm really glad I had that advice because fast forward from 1995 when he told me that, all the way to about year 2000, February of 2000, when I went to Kunsan, 2002. And I was expecting to take a flight chief's job. I needed a flight chief, my career progression and, uh, and everything else. And uh, when I got there, I found out uh, the boss called me in, and, and she's like, I don't have a flight position for you. Um, I could put you in one of my flights and have you run it, but what I really need is somebody to run our construction management section in the engineer flight. She said, I looked at your background, you have a lot of design and construction, and I really need somebody to get that section in shape because we have a lot of big projects coming up and, and I need somebody to run it. And I and we talked for a little bit and I was like, I, I can do that. I said, but I was really hoping for a flights chief's job, just career progression wise. And she said, we'll take care of you, don't worry about it, Just, but this is what I need. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll go do it. And so I, I did that for about six months, uh, about five months actually. And it was a great job. It was a lot of fun. I knew how to do it because I had been doing it uh, right. even at my previous assignment. That, that's exactly what I was doing. 
And so, uh, but it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. And about five months into it, she brought me back up to her office and, and we were talking. And she said, hey, we have an, an inbound person who got passed over for major. Uh, we thought he was going to be our engineer flight commander, which was a major's position. It was an 04. And I was a fairly young captain. I had, had captain on for right around three years by that point. Um, she said, but you did such a great job running the, uh, the uh, construction branch of the flight. Uh, and she said, I'm pretty confident you can do the whole flight job, so I'm going to move you into that flight commander's position. So now, not only did I get a flight commander's position, but I got a flight commander's position that was slotted for a rank above what I was actually wearing on my, on my collar at the wow. time. All because I did the best job I could in what I was in. And that, that job really is where my career started to kick off, right? Okay. Uh, learning how to take care of people. She definitely took care of me. Uh, and I'm still in contact with her today, Susan Morris. Great, great officer. She retired. I still email with her some. Uh, when I go back to D.C., I see her. Uh, different conferences I've gone to because she's still involved in the engineer mm -hmm. community um, with our society, Society of American Military Engineers. Uh, so this, this past uh, January, February time frame, I was at a conference and we had dinner and talked and, and everything else. And she really taught me the value that, that it pays off, right? Just do the best job you can. Mm -hmm. So out of that, I got a, a flight commander's job uh, at a rank higher than I was. And as a captain, uh, they awarded me an MSM for that, which was really kind of set things above because that's normally, uh, you don't, it's hard to get them as a captain. So, so what I would say is, is uh, set aside your, your preconceived ideas and just do the best job in whatever job you're in right now. Mm. Um, and don't try to game the system. Uh, it'll take care of you if you, you work hard and, and do what you need to do. Interesting. So what's interesting about that to me is um, that's really good advice. Both those things have played out in my career as well. And also I've heard that from a lot of other good leaders. So the takeaway for me is just that that's that if you're listening to this, you'll hear that throughout your, your time and definitely – Buy into those two ideas because it really, it really will pay off. So thank you. I'm, I've been MSG almost my entire career. I've done a couple of stints outside, once in the training squadron and once in a, a contingency response group. But a lot of folks listening don't know really what the MSG does. So what I would like to do next is, first of all, if you could tell us a little bit about what the MSG does, which I know is a hard question because we have our hands and everything on this base. Yep. Um, but if you could uh, do your best to just kind of sum it up and, and tell everyone listening that maybe, you know, is in the maintenance group or the ops group doesn't really deal with us on a daily basis, what it is that we do here. Think of the MSG as city management. Um, so my job as the MSG command, uh, commander is really the city manager, I guess you'd say, or the mayor. Um, we do saying everything is is kind of doesn't really underpin it. So I'll step through each of the squadrons and, sure. and kind of talk about that. We're comprised of six squadrons, very very diverse squadrons. Mm -hmm. uh, there's really no movement between the different squadrons. Um, so you don't start off as a cop and end up becoming a force support uh, as part of your career. That, that's not how it works. It's right. all separate career fields. <laughs> so. We'll talk about security forces. So we have the security forces on base. Um, they're responsible for guarding the flight line. They're responsible for guarding the fence line, um, the, the weapon storage areas. Um, they provide uh, police services, uh, investigative services. Um, they do some anti-terrorism uh, uh, things. Uh, they work hand-in-hand -hand with OSI on some different things and in investigations and uh, what's going on outside the fence. Um, they work with a local city, county, uh, sheriff and police department um, because we have some share, shared jurisdictions mm. on the installation. So anything you can think of uh, related to security forces, pass an ID, they, they deal with that. They do all the inspections for um, inbound uh, shipments through the, through the commercial gate. So think um, when we're having parts delivered or food is being delivered to Burger King, food is being delivered to the commissary. Goods are being delivered to the BX. They do all the inspections on those vehicles to look for bombs or whatever else may somebody contraband somebody may be able to to want to put on a vehicle. So they do all that. So you know a, a lot of uh, base defense. They're also trained in base defense uh, to actually defend the base if we have an attack or something like that. They run the Ready Augmentee program, which is an augmentee program uh, to help them with the base defense. So that's kind of what Security Forces does. <laughs> Logistics, uh, Logistics Readiness Squadron, all of our material comes in through them, all of our parts, all of our pieces, 
uh, supply. They do all the vehicles, uh, vehicle transportation, vehicle maintenance, um, all the fuels, all the fuel receipt for the aircraft, uh, diesel, um, gas, MoGas. They do our, our um, deployments. Um, so we have a deployment manager over there um, who takes care of all the bases deployments, um, the PAX terminal, the cargo terminal. Mm-hmm. Um, they do all that stuff for an exercise uh, to be able to get people out the door quickly. Uh, just, just a very big job uh, that they have. They have all of our individual protective equipment, mm-hmm. so gas masks, uh, chem suits, all the other stuff. Yeah. For support, all the care and feeding. Uh, so the typical things people think of are dining facilities. Um, they do have the dining facilities, ID cards. Deers, mm-hmm. um, all all of the things associated with your personnel record, your EPRs, OPRs, uh, managing all that. They have the military personnel flight. Uh, again, all your records. Uh, Airmen and Family Readiness Center. Um, they deal they deal with them, um, taking care of our airmen and our families, uh, which incorporates all, which incorporates all of the um, tap classes, transition assistance job hunting, mm-hmm. uh, family support, EFMP program uh, supporting in there. And then they have the NAF, uh, which is non-appropriated funds. So you have appropriated funds, which are funds, taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. And then you have the non-appropriated funds, which are what's generated. Uh, so the CDCs and the youth centers, they have a mix of both typically. Uh, but then you have our outdoor rack, our wood shop, kennel, uh, the on-base kennel mm-hmm. uh, that we have, Tanko Tales. The places to rent boats, to rent trailers, to rent anything to go backpacking, camping, all that falls underneath them as well. Then you have contracting. Contracting touches everybody. The GPC card management is done there. Um, a lot of the big contracts that are written all go through them, whether it's for construction, whether it's for personnel services, uh, to get some additional contractors help personnel. Um, all the supplies for everything you can think of, pens, pencils, everything uh, runs through them. Uh, they run a small business uh, program that's required by law, um, and and basically, if we buy something, uh, contracting has a hand in it. Com Squadron, uh, Com Squadron is changing as we go to a cyber defense force uh, a little bit. Heard about this, and so um, you know they're still doing some of the management on the systems and and con- helping control the systems and. Calm is just fascinating to me because I, I know enough to be dangerous, but that is the problem. I know enough to be dangerous and mess something up. Um, a lot of things have been taken up to a headquarters level uh, and controlled at headquarters level. So some of our servers and everything else. And what Calm is transitioning to is more that uh, we'll have um, IT as a service. Mm-hmm. And so all of our clouds, um, everything we do uh, for our electron storage and everything else, uh, will be a service, and there will be basically be a cyber defense force. So they'll be able to watch the network. They'll know what the traffic on the network is and be able to defend against attacks. So their career field is a little bit in, in flux right now uh, because it's shifting over to more of a cyber defense, uh, okay. cyber offensive uh, type environment. But but anything with our computers or cell phones, all that stuff, uh, all of our communications, uh, they do a lot with the, the airfield, with, with the communications with the aircraft and, mm-hmm. and, and those type, type of things. Um, so, so they're pretty busy. Our radios, all of our UHF radios, uh, they have a radio shop. Some of our secure comms on this base, they deal with the, that. Um, and then they provide some expertise over to CrewCom uh, for some of the things that we do with the jets. Civil engineers I'm most familiar with, and I could probably take up an hour and a half, two hours talking <laughs> just about the civil engineers because that's my career field. Your chem bio defense is done over there through the uh, emergency management flight. Um, your um, environmental, all the environmental stuff goes through them. Mm-hmm. Coordination with the EPA, coordination with the state, all that's done. Uh, then you have your back shops. So all your plumbers, all your electricians, all your HVAC mechanics, uh, structures, all the work that they do on fixing the facilities day, day in, day out. Mm-hmm. I know I probably forgot one or two because there's so many of them and, and I'll, I'll hear about it from them later, I'm sure. All the maintenance you have on the facilities, the roofs, the, the inside lights, the power, uh, the carpet, the walls, um, they fix everything inside a facility. Mm. Engineering section does all the designs. Uh, they'll do design through uh, architectural engineer form, um, um, businesses, uh, firms, and uh, through the Corps of Engineers. Um, anything from new construction to renovations, uh, fixing the roads. Uh, their boys do uh, the roads, and, um, and they do... Uh, Airfield snow removal, uh, base snow removal, 
the engineers or all the facilities, all the maintenance on those facilities and roads, mm-hmm. um, the electrical systems, the overhead electrical and, and the water sewage uh, as well. They deal with all those and make sure that those are maintained in proper working condition. Uh, another very important one is uh, we get our water from wells mm-hmm. um, over on the Spokane River. Um, they okay. tap into the aquifer down there, so they keep those wells running, and they provide the drinking water we have on the installation. Uh, on top of that, we also have the uh, the fire department falls underneath the civil engineers. Right. So crash, fire, rescue, uh, a little bit different than a normal city has because they actually do uh, crash um, uh, operations for the runway um, to take care of the aircraft if we have a mishap. Uh, anytime there's an in-flight emergency, they're out there um, prepared to, to deal with anything in case it mm-hmm. goes wrong. So. That is, in, in a quick nutshell, the span of the six squadrons inside the MSG and, 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 and everything we do on the installation. It's a lot of stuff. It is. It's a lot Definitely. of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, being a civil engineering background my entire career, I definitely can agree with you on that one. So this is your, is this your first group command? This is. This is. So just out of curiosity, and I, just, I, just want, I was just curious about this. What was something that surprised you about the other – Squadrons, or just about the group as a whole, when you when you first sat in the in the group commander seat, and I know as you know as a squadron commander, you probably learn a little bit about your squadrons, but not as much as I'm sure you have over the last couple of years. The I was a group deputy for a year. Okay, but I, I think what surprised me as as the group commander is the sheer volume of work and and the uh, the the volume of things that just need signed. Mm-hmm. You know, I I knew. I knew as a squadron commander what I needed from my group commander, right? And uh, and that and that was quite a bit, you know, uh, signature on thirteen ninety ones and and briefings on on uh, what was going on with facilities and all that, and you know that was a full time job, um, just prepping that. So take that and multiply it times six, uh, and then you really start to understand how how much is going on. So the sheer volume of work going on is really what caught me off guard a little bit. And then I knew this would happen, but it still surprises you is the, if you're not comfortable with it already is you're not the expert on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So coming up in the civil engineer community, I'm, I'm an expert in my career field and I'm very, very comfortable with that. Um, very comfortable with all the rules and regs and everything else. And now you are not an expert in five of the six squadrons you have. Right. Uh, to where really you're relying on your squadron commanders and those superintendents out there getting the job done to be able to give you that because you have no background in their world. Mm. That caught me off guard a little bit is the amount of information you don't know. Right. Um, and then how do you deal with that? You know, how do you deal with the information you don't know when you're having to make decisions? And it's just having the experts and helping them walk you down and learning to ask questions. Uh, that's kind of my leadership style anyway, as I ask a lot of questions. And, and I told my squadrons that. I told the group that when I, when, I, when I took the group is when I'm out and about and asking questions, it's not because I'm questioning somebody's ability uh, in what they're doing, but it's how I learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a very inquisitive person by nature. Uh, and so I've been able to manage it because to me it's fun to learn something new. Right. Uh, but really the sheer volume of the work and how different it was across the six squadrons has caught me a little off more off guard than I thought it would. I knew it'd be different. I just didn't know the magnitude okay. to what it would be different. What what helped you get over that? Cause I'm sure other people would deal with this on a, on a smaller level. What helped you be able to maybe aside from asking the questions, just trust that the other, you know, other people are telling you what, what, what they're telling you is correct and just kind of going forward with that information. Because it's not easy to do. It's not easy just to trust someone if you don't, especially if you don't know when you first meet them. Just you know, trust what they're saying and, and move forward with their plan or execute whatever they're saying. A couple things. The the first thing is asking questions, right? And so if something doesn't sound right, I would say trust your gut and ask some more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you ask questions and those people are answering them, they've got an answer on the spot. That builds confidence. And what they know and, and how they're applying it and, and, and that the decision they're asking you to make with their input is typically a, a solid, good decision. Mm-hmm. And that builds confidence in a leader when, when those that are, are briefing you and asking you to, to make a decision, they're able to answer fairly quickly. Um, so is that saying you're saying they're building 
your confidence in them or yes okay yeah. so because i don't know them you asked right. about you know in people you don't know how do you build that trust and so they're experts in their field and 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 once you have that then you just then you go to something i've learned and i think it's 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 great uh, i have I've had only a couple bad bosses. Everybody talks about bad bosses. Mm-hmm. I have had a great career full of great bosses who trust and allowed me to run on my own and get the job done uh, with vector checks. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, because I was given the trust of my leadership growing up in the Air Force, I've been able to do that with my squadron commanders, uh, to trust what they're doing is right. Um, and then I, I get the briefings once a week at staff meeting and ask questions and vector check as we go along. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how you just have to handle with it. You have to you have to handle it and understand that there's no way you can answer everything. Right. There's no way they can answer everything, even within their own squadrons. Uh, so every now and then, they, you know, same thing I'd have to do. Boss, I don't have that answer right now, but let me get back to you. Mm-hmm. You do that once or twice, that that's one thing. But when you're doing that all the time, that's what starts to erode that trust. And, and I just haven't seen that here. And so it's been great. Uh, with the teams that we've had, that they've really supported their commanders uh, and the people who are coming up to brief me on things and just build that trust that they know what they're doing. And, and then um, having learned how to how to gain or how to have somebody's trust and do the job for them. So that's kind of how I've approached it. What I'd like to ask next then, how do you define success? And as a, as a backup to that, or a secondary question to that, what do you think has made you successful throughout your career? Does success is a hard one to define, you know. My goals coming in the Air Force, my professional goals, because there's, there's success on the professional side, there's success on the personal side, and if those two things don't match up, you've not been successful. And so on the professional side, my goal was to make colonel and to have a group. Anything after that, I would consider gravy. That was my goal. Uh, so I've been able to meet my goal professionally. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Colonel E.G. Primus, he was my deputy support group commander at, at, at Pope Air Force Base. Uh, when I was a young captain, he talked about several different things, and he was a mentor, and he would he would talk to the CGOs, have mentoring sessions for the CGOs, and just one thing that stuck in my head was is you want to finish the dance with the partner you started with. Mm-hmm. That's the way he would put it. If at the end of a career your family isn't there because you've lost them along the way, you may not have been fully successful mm-hmm. in, in my eyes. You know, that's... I do this because I have a family and I want to support them and provide for them. And I love being in the Air Force. Um, Those two things sometimes are mutually exclusive, but not always. And so I think truly success for me is both on the personal side, having my family there, uh, having kids that still like to talk to me, be around us, me and my wife, having a wife who is still there. Uh, we do a lot of things together. We, we've traveled all over the state in the truck, uh, just looking at mountains and rivers and valleys and animals and this beautiful state here in Washington. Mm-hmm. But to me, that would be success, is, is having a, a good career where you've met your goals and then still having your family there with you uh, when it's all said and done. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, no matter where you work, you're not going to work there one day. Uh, so for me, that's coming up fairly soon. That's coming up in September but September 1st, I am no longer in the Air Force. Mm. I'm a retiree at that point. And so I can come on a base and enjoy being on a base, but I will not be part of the active duty Air Force anymore. But I will still have a wife and two kids. Mm-hmm. right? So for me, success is blending the two um, and not losing sight on the two. And I've just had a great wife, uh, uh, very patient. Uh, we've moved all over the place. Um, and she's helped me with squadrons and taking care of people. Um, so success for me is having a, a good career and still having my family there uh, when it's all said and done. Uh, and then uh, having those other relationships. Life is about building those relationships. It's, it's, you know, making money and having money. That's all fine. We need to do that to make a living. But it's really about your friends and the personal connections you make and, and those personal connections you make when you're in, in different jobs. And there's people I know all over the world now uh, because the Air Force has afforded me to meet so many different people and to get in touch with them and stay connected to them and get to know them personally. Um, that's been part of my success in the Air Force as well. Uh, and then being able to reach back to some of them and just talk, see how things are going, uh, and, and just uh, to be able to lean on them uh, when you need it. Um, and that, to me, is success. It sounds like your, your family's been a pretty big driving factor throughout your 
career. They have. So would that say is probably what's been your biggest motivator throughout your career? And if so, um, how did you balance those two those two things? Because I know as a senior NCO, I'm busy, but I can't even imagine how busy you are as a as a colonel, MSG commander. Um, so that's one thing I'd like to ask you then. There is no balancing. I can tell you that right now. Um, I've talked to some of our CGOs about it. I've talked to some other folks about it here in the office. When people talk about balancing, that they're I don't. I don't know if there is a perfect balance when you're talking life and and family and job. Something always tends to outweigh. Um, and, and I think what you've got to do is just know when when those things are. Know when you're the jobs requiring more. Know when the family's requiring more. You you can have a fairly decent balance, but um, you know, like last summer, Mobility Guardian was up coming up. Right? There's no way I'm gonna be able to take, you know, leave during that month, which is a prime month around here to be able to go see stuff. Right, you know? right. It's temperate. It's, it's, it's not hot. It's not cold. It's a great month. But you just understand that, hey, that's not going to happen. The family side is going to have to take a little bit of a backseat during them 21 days of exercise. And then you're talking about the, the six months really hard build up to it. And then, you know, still doing work two or three months later in the MSG to get a bunch of stuff out the door back to the bases we belonged in. So I think it's just knowing your family and taking the time to be there when they need that you need you need to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's a wishy-washy answer, but I don't think there's any way that you can expect that your work-life balance is going to be balanced throughout your whole career. Right. And I think some people need to understand that. <laughs> you know, being there for the major milestones and and being there for the kids and, and your spouse uh, that's an important thing. Making sure that you're you're available and. That's probably been one of my, my regrets is that there's just been times where I haven't been able to do that. Deployed to Korea for a year, deployed to Afghanistan, uh, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia uh, to where you miss those birthdays and you miss those other things. Um, but you just got to be able to have time. Uh, think of it like in a bank account. I know people probably heard this before, but you have to be making deposits into a bank account. And that's really a non-emotional way to talk about it. Um so that they know that during those other times when you're not there, that you're you still love them and that they're still part of the family, and and that's really what my motivation has been is is my wife and, and two kids, uh, my daughter, my son, and, and my wife, because this is about them. Um, it's about providing a living for them, and they paid a, a pretty heavy price, in my opinion. Uh, both my children are a little bit older; they turn 21 and 23 next month mm-hmm. in June. Uh, but it's something I've talked to them about because it, it's been. It weighs on, on my mind sometimes, the moving them around. Mm-hmm. You know, they were both in two different high schools. Uh, but luckily, I was able to plan out a career and know that, hey, if I hit these certain gates, I'll be able to have two ba- two years at one base, two years at another base, and possibly two years at the Pentagon is what I was hoping. Mm-hmm. And we were able to work that out so that both kids were able to do ninth and 10th one year, and then they were able to do 11th and 12th the next year. But that is really, really hard on kids is moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it happened from an early age. Um, and But they don't know any different. And uh, it's been great having them come back from college. And they're like, we really realized how much different it is to be a military family. Um, because the, a lot of their friends were non-military families. They grew up in the same house mm-hmm. their entire life. My kids haven't spent more than two years in the same yeah, house. Um, and so... Uh, but they gave them the ability to make friends uh, and see so many different places around our country, so many major cities, so many other things that some of their friends didn't see. When we lived in South Dakota, they had a bunch of friends who had never seen the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've swum in both oceans and the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, just to, to be able to see all these different things. Um, and so so it is hard on the family, and you gotta you got to understand that, um, that it is hard and you You've got to do things to be able to help them through that. Um, as military members, we come to work and we have an instant instant group of friends. Right. Um, but that doesn't happen on the spouse side and it doesn't happen on the kid side. They've, they've got to make them. Uh, you've sure. got to go into school and, and make them or, or into work or whether you stay at home. you got to find those things through different community outlets and everything else. And so I think it's tougher on them, the moving and the everything else, than it, than it was on my side. And they've, they've stuck stuck with the Air Force as we've done that and realized that it's a lot of sacrifice they've done as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely know that's something I forget sometimes, you know, how much my wife and kids sacrifice. So that, that's some 
that's a very good point. So you mentioned before that you really enjoy learning. So is there anything that you're learning now that you'd like to put out there for everyone that you think would be good, good for other people to maybe start learning? Right now I'm learning a lot about transition. I thought I knew about transition, but as, I, as I'm looking to move on to a civilian job, I, I'm learning a lot of the things that I, I either needed to have lined up, and I'm trying to do it now, and what I'm going to do, a lot of our stuff in the military does translate well into the civilian sector, uh, so that's a good thing. But but I do like learning, and even even though in the Air Force you've dealt, I'll say dealt, and dealt's a bad word, but you've had all these interactions with the folks in the maintenance group, the folks in the med group, and the folks in the OG, and you kind of understand the basics of what each one does. It's it's you don't really understand the details of each one, and I think at at the O six level at my at the colonel's level, I've had more interaction with the other groups because of the group commanders and the dynamics that we have. Mm-hmm. We have a really great team here that works together, and I've just learned a lot uh, in the past couple of years about the other groups within a wing, mm-hmm. um, more so than I did even as a squadron commander or as an operations flight commander. Um, because of the issues you deal with. And it, it's very interesting, the, the different cultures within each of those subgroups. You know, there's a definite culture in the MSG, and then there's a culture mm-hmm. in each one of our six squadrons that are different. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's also a different culture in the operations group, in the maintenance group, in the MIG group. And to see how we interact with one another and we work together to get a mission accomplished, uh, to me, is just fascinating. I, I enjoy watching and learning about those dynamics and see how they play out and how... Uh, and how the opinions and, and the expertise in each one of them really help run a wing and set the goals and, and, do, and direction that a wing will go in. Again, it kind of goes back to preconceived ideas when you come in, right, based on your cultural background. Try and shed those and try and learn more about the other cultures within the Air Force, the other groups. I, I think one of the nice things that we get to learn on the support side is we get to go to a lot of different types of bases, Fighter base, bomber base, uh, tanker base, mm-hmm. special operations base. Right. Where some of the operators and maintainers don't get to do that. Some of them get pigeonholed into an airframe mm-hmm. uh, both on both sides of that fence. And so uh, we, we get to learn from these different communities uh, and, and everything else. And so um, one of the things I, I learned here is just really uh, how all those communities come together and, and bring in all those, those biases or or cultures from them, different groups to, to make the things happen for the wing. The next question I want to ask then is if you could give us a couple of, of resources or books that you've read throughout your career recently even or, or even in the past that, that really helped you out or resources that you utilize for your own professional development. There's a couple. One has just been a central building foundation of who I am, the ideas and thoughts in it, um, but the leadership's perspective from it as well is uh, the Bible. I've read that, and, and I, I think if you're going to talk any leadership book, even even if you don't approach the Bible from a religious standpoint mm-hmm. and you look at it uh, from from a purely secular point of view and, and you look at some of the things in the Old Testament with uh, the judges and King David and and just the, the characters that are there and the things they went through as you read and the decisions they make and how those things worked out, I think is a a fascinating study on leadership in and of itself. Mm. That's been a, from a religious standpoint, from my, my spiritual growth, that has been the single most important book in, in my life to read. And and so I still read it today, uh, not as much as I should, but the lessons you can learn from it, um, even on a non-spiritual level, are pretty fascinating. Proverbs, a lot of wisdom in Proverbs. Um, had a first sergeant who was going away, and one of the things that I, I take away and, and put on, on, on uh, something we gave him for going away was there's a Proverbs where it talks about like iron sharpens iron so the friend sharpens the countenance of another friend mm-hmm. um, which that's not necessarily a religious uh, viewpoint but what it what it basically says is that what friends you decide to have and who you hang out with are really going to shape who you are mm-hmm. right as iron sharpens iron they used to use an iron stone to sharpen the iron swords and things like that back in that day. And so as iron, you use iron to sharpen another piece of iron, your friends and who you hang out with are going to affect who you are and how good of a person you can be or 
how bad of a person you will will end up being. You know, mm-hmm. you, you run with a certain crowd and you're going to act a certain way. Um, and so picking friends wisely is an important thing and picking um, uh, people you you confide in is important. And so, so like I said, there's a lot of important things in there that you can glean just on a leadership level. Um, a book I read not too long ago when I was on air staff and we we read it with our, our general officer and we'd have uh, weekly meetings on, on different chapters, but it's the speed of trust. How do you, how to trust uh, in one another and not have to have all the information um, and understand how, how a flat organization works. You're going to have many people working on many different things at one time and there just needs to be that factor of trust um, in that they're doing the right thing as long as everybody is their eyes are on the same goal and you're all moving in the same direction. You necessarily don't have to know all the details. You're just trusting that person next to you to be doing the job that they need to be doing to get after that same goal. So speed of trust was great. Um, and then anything that has Malcolm Gladwell's name on it. Um, I really like Malcolm Gladwell. The first book I read was Blink. Kind of let you know how you think and how you start to, uh, to frame things. Then he had a couple other books after that. I think The Tipping Point was one of them. Um, and then I can't remember the, the last couple that he wrote, but, but I've read them. And uh, they're just phenomenal books, on, especially for an engineer, growing up as an engineer, to help me understand the human mind and development. And every decision we make is made with the emotional and the intelligence baggage we bring into it. Mm-hmm. If you don't think your decisions are made with some sort of bias, uh, then you, you, you need to read his books. Okay. Um, because how you were brought up, how you were raised... Even in the Air Force, what career field you're in, how that, that those are all things that we bring into our decision making process. Uh, so that was and anything with Malcolm Gladwell was a, a good book to read. So those are the main ones that I've read. Um, John Maxwell also has a lot of good books on mm-hmm. on leadership that I think are, are good. And I took a couple of Maxwell courses when I was a lieutenant on okay. um, on, on managing time and things like that. I'm a terrible manager of my own time, um, and I, I've learned that about myself. And so. To, to let people know that, hey, I need help in this area. So as far as my front office staff, just keep me on task. They, they know that that's one area that, that I could use help in. And so any books on time management have helped me as well. So those, those are kind of the big ones. Well, sir, normally I don't get this far. So we actually made it through all the questions on this sheet. That's pretty good. Um, so I got one last question for you then. And this is, this is probably the biggest question. It's to leave us with three takeaways, three lessons you've learned throughout your career. If you could only, you know, give give me three pieces of advice, what would those three things be? Again, I know that's a broad question. It is a broad question, and and I typically talk about three things. But before I do that, one, and we'll talk about one other thing. I'll go back to my my days as a young captain running around Pope Air Force Base with a, a two year old and a, a newborn, and something I'll go back to what Lieutenant Colonel E. G. Primus said is he had something that he, he called SLPs. Um, and, and really, SLP stands for shitty little project. Every single commander has them. You have all these little things that are just biting at your heels that need to be done. Mm-hmm. Find out what they are and take them on. I would always be working one or two SLPs uh, for the group at, down in the Civil Engineering Squadron, whether that was something uh, as simple as they wanted at the wing. The wing wanted a... At the flagpole, they wanted bricks uh, where you could put people's names on, on the bricks that had done some things or had, had done some things on base or, or things like that. Uh, but that's not something that was really an engineer project, but I had a background in it, and I took that project on and, and got it done. Not particularly fun. Took a lot of work. Had to coordinate a lot of it and, and had to coordinate it with everybody in the wing. Mm-hmm. But I got to know my, my group deputy a little bit better. Um, I got to know the wing a little bit better and how the wing commander thought on things and glean some of that leadership. Uh, always working on one or two SLPs that were kind of out of my my normal job jar, I mm-hmm. guess you'd say, uh, which helped me start to understand. So uh, every boss has projects they need to get done, uh, whether it's an idea they want to push forward or some new thing they want to try in the, the squadron. Uh, we call them innovation today, right? Um, a lot of innovation things. And and take advantage of that because the Air Force is on a big innovation kick mm-hmm. on how to save time and money. Right. And so if there's a new way to do business, the Air Force is wide open to that day. That's an SLP. It's the same thing that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Primus called an SLP. That's exactly what it is. Take that on and, and get it done. 
<laughs> so um, the big three uh, things I would say to take away, um, and, and I kind of talk them, and no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been serving, uh, whether or not you're going to continue to serve in the Air Force, whether or not you're going to get out and work in civil, uh, the civil sector, the private sector, um, I think these three things will carry you through. First one is competence. You never know everything. Mm-hmm. It's a continual process of learning. Life is a continual process of learning. Continue to build the competence uh, that you have in your job, in, in what you want to do. I would like eventually to have a coffee shop one day. I love Pacific Northwest coffee. My wife wasn't a coffee drinker when we moved here. She didn't like it, and uh, now she loves lattes. And so I would like to have my own little coffee shop one day. But that's something I am not competent in. Right. I know how to drink lattes. I know how to make them at my house. Uh, we have a great machine that we can make them at my house. But uh, I don't know about that business. So that's something I've been uh, trying to learn more about, talk to different people who do that. But I, I want to build that competence so that one day when I have the opportunity, maybe I can open up a little shop uh, somewhere on the East Coast uh, where we're, gonna, we're planning to settle down. Uh, but no matter what it is, what you want to do, you're always going to have to continue learning. Uh, things change. Mm-hmm. Uh, things change vastly, especially over a 25-year career. Things have changed a whole lot. Uh, we're on our third set of uh, battle uniforms, whether they're called BDUs or mm-hmm. whatever we call them now, ACUs. Um, and so I've worn about four different sets, including DCUs in, in, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia of the yeah. same uniform. But things change, and they always will change. And you got to continue to learn, continue to build your competence in that area. Uh, we're never done. Our airmen have their CDCs to get through. Officers have their officer development courses to get through, uh, civilian development courses. Continue learning. Always keep your competence moving forward um, and become more competent and professional in whatever you decide to do. Uh, second is, is commitment. <clears throat> commitment isn't just to the Air Force. It's commitment to the people around you. For me, it's commitment to my wife and my children and my bigger family in general. My commitment to my airmen that the Air Force has, has, uh, has allowed me to lead and has allowed me the opportunity and, and, the, and the, uh, the pleasure to be able to lead airmen. That's probably the most humbling thing in my career is being able to, to lead airmen. They're phenomenal. Our, our Air Force is in good hands. Uh, mm-hmm. the, you hear people talk about the generation, uh, but every generation, I think, does that. Uh, every generation coming behind us, they're competent and they're good. They just talk a little bit different. They have different ways to communicate. But, but the, the ability to lead airmen has just been a huge privilege of mine and to be committed to seeing them do well. It's really hard to have an effect on a large group, and so have an effect on the group that you're part of. And then once you do that, then you can start to reach out. That just multiplies, right? So right now I have uh, several different people in, in our front office. That's my core group and my commanders. It's kind of my core group of people I, I mentor. I see almost every day. I talk to almost every day. What positive impact can I have on them? Because now they have a different group, right? I'm in their group. They have a different group. They can reach out to those people. They're committed mm-hmm. to a different group of people, and it just spreads. So, so having a commitment uh, to a cause, to our nation, to the Air Force, to your family, to other people, uh, whatever it is, do it wholeheartedly and do it to the best of your ability and continue to, to develop that commitment uh, even after you leave the Air Force if, you, if you're planning to do that. And then the third thing I would say is community. I used to talk balance here uh, before I understood that you're never really going to have things in balance family, work, life for long. Here is, is your community, that broader Air Force community. So for us, it's, it's if you're in a squadron, it's that squadron is the basic building block of the Air Force. Uh, and it really is the basic building block. <laughs> in, in our group, if you go talk to our airmen, they'll tell you I'm in security forces. They'll tell you I'm in contracting. They'll tell you I'm in FSS, whatever the sixth squadron is. They will not tell you I'm in the MSG. That's not the first thing out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy for that because really their core group, their community is that squadron. Uh, I kind of term it kind of like that's their high school, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's where they grow up. That's where they learn. That's where the majority of their friends are. And that, that's their community. And as they continue to, to grow in our Air Force, that community will span and broaden out to different groups as they learn to, to work with one another. Um, so whether your community... Uh, it's just in your job or uh, for, for me here, it's, it's the, the church we go to, uh, people I've met through that, the local community. What is your community? And then once you figure out what that community is, get involved and make it better. 
Um, so those, those are really the, the three things that, that I'd like you to leave with, uh, with the people listening is continue to, to develop and be competent. Continue and develop your commitment to a cause and, and to, to, to what is right. And then continue to develop your community and make it better. Because mm-hmm. um, if you're not doing those things, then, then really, you know, the, the, that's really life lessons, not so much Air Force lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, competence, commitment, and community. Uh, is what I would leave people with today. All right, sir. Well, that, that's uh, yeah. We got through all the questions, so I, I guess I'll, I'll leave it with. Um, do you have anything? Any last last parting words, or is that? Time goes by quick. Yeah. Um, enjoy it and enjoy the time you're in right now, because it goes by quickly. It is just fascinating to me, and, and I smile when I see it, but when I see parents with young kids and they're running around and playing and uh, I still see my little girl or my little boy doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even though they're, one's graduated from college and then they're uh, working and the other is a, a senior in college next year. Time goes by fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so enjoy the time you're in right now. Look toward the future on where you want to go and set that course and make it happen. Nobody can set your future for you just enjoy the time you're in right now as well. And, and I've been in some hard times. And it's not to say that hard times won't come and you want to get through them fastly. I've been in some very hard times. And just understand that things pass. Time moves on. Mm-hmm. Things end up getting better uh, no matter what it is. Uh, and, and just enjoy the time you're in right now and, and look to a bright future. Well, sir, I appreciate you sitting down and talking with me. Uh, before I when I started doing this, took over from Sergeant Haas, I wanted to interview you anyway. And then when I found you were retiring this this year, I definitely wanted to to interview you. Yep. Um, I appreciate that. You know, I just want to say thank you. I know we didn't interact a whole lot, but when I was over at the emergency management flight, I learned a lot from you doing the EMWG meetings and the EOC, how to present information. Um, definitely helped me grow as Great. a briefer and a presenter. So I appreciate that. And, I, and I, I'm sure I'm not the only one on this base or throughout your entire career. So what I want to say was thank you very much for serving. Uh, and thank you for, for taking the time to do this and taking the time to do all the other things that you've done around here. I'm not going to list all of them because that would take me a, a while. <laughs> but, um, you know, you're very active in the base and you're very open and honest and you're, you're very willing to like listen to people and, and listen to their ideas and Thanks. understand that, you know, hey, we maybe should go in their direction or not. So I appreciate that. So Great. Um, but with that, sir, that's all I've got. And, uh, again, thanks for sitting down and taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Sir. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Refuel Team Fair Child podcast. If you have show ideas, people you'd like to hear from, or if you'd like to be on the podcast, contact us at fafbcaa at gmail.com.